I'm going to read from the scriptures. This is Psalm 119, beginning in verse 49 and going through verse 56. It's the Zion section of Psalm 119. Remember, as I read and as you follow along, this is the word of God. Psalm 119, 49. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me, that I have kept your precepts. Let's pray once more. Lord, as we come before your word, we ask for the ministry of your spirit in our midst. May he wield the sword uh, that, that he wields. Uh, may the promises that uh, in the preaching of your word be, be made manifest even now. We pray that your word would not return void and that it would indeed provide a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I don't think I have to remind you of the the overall structure of Psalm 119. However, I do want to make just a brief comment about this section that we're entering into now. There actually is a a, a number, there are a number of structural uh, details that are worth understanding of course this is an acrostic psalm and so you see how it in this section of course is no exception to that but there are also larger structural matters that we can discuss when it comes to psalm 119 and i think one of them that's worth pointing out is this that this this section beginning in verse 49 and going all the way through verse 80 which is the yod section of the psalm presents in, in a different way from the rest of the psalm, some very hostile images. It's clear throughout the psalm that the psalmist is writing in a time in which he's surrounded by wicked people, and he's certainly not always finding himself among the godly. But in this section in particular, verses 49 through 80, what we see is the way in which all of that ungodliness has even infiltrated his own house and in some cases his own heart. And so there is a, a heightened degree of, of, uh, of opposition that the psalmist articulates for us in this section of the psalm. And the reason why I bring that up at the beginning is because we have seen in Psalm 119 the way in which it gives us this anatomy, as it were, of, of what it means to to live a life of experimental Christianity, of genuine, heartfelt devotion to the Lord. And here in particular, beginning in this section, I think what we see with with even greater clarity and specificity is the way to live that kind of godly life in the midst of, of a world that is utterly opposed to the gospel and a culture that in every way seeks to encroach on our lives and and on even our homes and certainly on our hearts with wicked ideas that are opposed to God's word. So so if you want to know 
how to live in the midst of a culture that is opposed to the gospel, a culture that hates biblical teaching, a culture that in all sorts of ways is arrayed against a mind conformed to the pattern of scripture, then this section of Psalm 119 speaks with particular clarity to just that situation. Now, there's something else going on in this section of the psalm that we need to be aware of. There is a a word that is repeated three times that is, I think, the key, really, to understanding the message of the psalm. It's a word that's really the first word in our English version, beginning in verse 49, but it's a word that's repeated again in verse 52 and again in verse 55, and it's this word, remember. This section of the psalm, of Psalm 119, really uh, is oriented around this concept of remembering, of, of, of memory, of memory of things past and of the Lord's remembering his own promises. In addition, one other structural detail that we need to see in order to make our way through this section is that there are, as it were, uh, contexts in which the psalmist finds himself or in which he at least expresses his own situation. The first is in verses 49 through 52. And the way we could describe this scene is the psalmist is in the midst, is in kind of a, 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 this, this uh, cloud of affliction and, and derision. You'll notice this in verse 50. He talks about his comfort in affliction. And then you see as well in verse 51, the situation that accompanies that affliction, which is the insolent utterly deride me. So that's the first room, as it were, that the psalmist takes us into. The second room that he takes us into, the second scene on which he appears and, and, and gives us his teaching is in verses 53 and 54. And we might call this room not so much the room of affliction and derision, although no doubt it still contained that, but the room of sojourning among the wicked. And this is why I say that this section of the psalm uh, really does address the kind of situation that we are acutely aware that we ourselves are in. You don't have to look very hard or very long at the culture around us to realize that we are, in a very real way, sojourners. Uh, this world is not our home, and, and that we're sojourning among people who, by and large, are given over to wickedness, and that is seen in increasing ways uh, in our culture. But that's exactly the situation that the psalmist is in, in verses 53 through 54. Look at what he says. He talks about the wicked in verse 53, who are all around him and are filling him with hot indignation. But then look at what he says in verse 54. This is the house of his sojourning, which is actually a kind of unusual phrase to use because we think of a house as a, as a sort of permanent dwelling. This is where we live. This is where we belong. We, we say, I'm at home here. But you see, his house is a house of sojourning, which seems to almost give the opposite, uh, have the opposite implication that sojourning means that you're a wanderer, that you don't have a home. Well, he has a home. It's sojourning among the wicked. And then finally, the third scene, the third room that he takes us into that I think is significant is what he describes here in verse 55, which is the situation of being in the middle of the night. 
In fact, he says it this way in verse 55, I remember your name in the night, O Lord. And there's no indication earlier in the psalm that that's the context. It could be, of course. It could be that all of these things are happening at once for him. But it is striking that the way in which he describes each of these situations uh, involves another level of difficulty. We move from affliction and derision to a house of sojourning among the wicked, and then finally to nightfall itself in verse 55. Let's look at it in terms of these three scenes. First, I want to ask this question of the text, because I think this is the question that the psalmist seeks to answer. What does the psalmist ask for, or what does he do in the midst of affliction and derision? How is it that he handles affliction and derision in which he finds himself? Well, the first thing he does, and this is the beginning of verse 49, and I've already pointed this out to you, is he asks God to remember his word to his servant. This is the use of that important word in this section, remember. And here, the psalmist isn't trying to remember something himself or call to mind something that he knew in the past. He's actually speaking directly to the Lord, and he's asking the Lord to remember his word. Now, this this is actually a very biblical way of praying. Uh, We see it elsewhere in the Old Testament. We see, for instance, in Exodus 32, you remember the context of Exodus 32, uh, Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law from the Lord. And meanwhile, the people at the bottom of the mountain are constructing this idol with the help of Aaron, this golden calf, and they worship the golden calf and engage in this real pagan uh, uh, um, worship service. And, and, and the Lord, of course, is infuriated, inflamed with wrath against the people, and rightly so, and Moses is too. But then Moses goes to the Lord. He asks the Lord uh, to show mercy on the people. And it's interesting to see how in Exodus 32 that's recorded, and then how it's recorded again in Deuteronomy 9. In Deuteronomy 9, it just tells us that Moses prayed for the people. But Exodus 32 uh, explains it a little more, explains exactly what the Lord said. And here's what it says. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And then then he puts it this way. And this is really the, the, the center point of Moses' prayer to the Lord. As remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And then it says the Lord relented from the disaster. See, what Moses is doing there is exactly what the psalmist is doing here in Psalm 119. And I think it's meant to be an example to all of us, an instruction to all of us, which is he's saying to the Lord, Lord, remember everything you've promised. He's repeating back to the Lord the promises that the Lord himself had made. And you see, in the case of Moses, he repeats it verbatim to the Lord. He reminds the Lord very specifically of specific promises. He quotes the Bible back to God and says, Lord, you've said this. Now I'm asking you to do it according to your word. And I've mentioned this before in Psalm 119 because it's a repeated theme. That's that's really the model of prayer in the Bible. That's at least the starting point for biblical prayer. 
other things that we're free to pray for. But that that ought to be enter of our intercession before the Lord. Lord, Lord, you've said this. Lord, this is this is what you have said in your word. Now, now I'm coming to you on that basis in faith and asking you to do it. Asking you to remember the word that you've given to your servant. It's the same kind of thing we see in Nehemiah 1. You remember, in fact, Nehemiah uses this exact term, just as Moses does, to the Lord. He says, uh, remember your word, Lord, that you commanded to Moses. And it's two parts in the case of Nehemiah. You remember that you said you would scatter your people if they didn't obey you. But remember, you also said that if your people repent, you'd regather them. And so it's on that basis that Nehemiah goes to the Lord in prayer. And the question we have to ask ourselves at this point, if this is such a foundational way of praying, if this is really the first recourse of the psalmist in the midst of wickedness and in the midst of affliction is to go to the Lord with the Bible, with the scriptures, with God's promises at hand, waving them before the Lord and, and asking him to one question we could ask ourselves is this, do we, do we even know the Lord's word well enough to do that? And do, do you know the promises of God verbatim? Do, do you actually know what God has promised his people? You may know one or two verses, and, and that's a good start, of course. But, but how well, to what depth and degree do you actually know the promises of God? So that when you face opposition, and you will, and you know you will, when you face opposition, as your first recourse, you have, you have this long list of glorious promises that God has given to his people. And you can go to God on that basis and say, Lord, remember, remember your word, which you have made to your servant. Now look at the way he is answered by the Lord in, in, in verse 50. He says, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. You see, this is, this is why uh, it's so significant that we do this first and that the psalmist does this first. Because actually then it's the word of God that's giving comfort as he goes to God requesting the very thing promised. Do you remember this is the logic really of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, a very well-known prayer. And I'm sure you probably, many of you probably have parts of it memorized in Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. But I want to read verse 13 for you, because often this is ignored. The lead-in to the prayer says this. He says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And, and then he goes on to say in the prayer, for this reason, because I don't want you to lose heart as you watch me suffer and know the suffering that causes you. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And then he goes on to say that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with the fullness of God. You see, what Paul does again and again, as he recognizes that in times of suffering, in times of difficulty, and then to go to God with that knowledge of who he is, asking him 
to do it. Look at what he says in verse 52. He repeats this word comfort again. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. So often we may seek out comfort and often our seeking after comfort takes us in sinful directions. We find ways that we think are going to bring comfort, some kind of relief to us. But the Bible, you want, when you want comfort, what you do is you look to the word of God, you look to the promises of God, and then you go to God with those very promises. That's the pattern here in Psalm 119, and that's no less the pattern today. And, and he does this, of course, in the midst of verse 51. I, I mentioned that it's not just affliction, it's also derision. Other people are, are deriding him all along. But what's he doing to receive comfort, even in the midst of these people turning on him and mocking him and, and, and ignoring him and doing all kinds of things to humiliate him? What's he doing? Well, again, he's God. His own rules and taking comfort from them. Now, the second thing I want to mention, the second context of this psalm is not just affliction and derision, but also this very strange, very peculiar image of sojourning in your house among the wicked. Sojourning among the wicked. Now, this is a very interesting one in the Bible. Uh, it's, it's used, of course, as we know, and this may be the first place your mind goes, it's used of the patriarchs, particularly of Abraham. Abraham was a sojourner in a land that was not yet his own. And it's used, too, of the nation of Israel as they sojourn before they fully take the land. Um, and it's also used of the population that comes in and out of the land, uh, these, these kinds of uh, local tribes or, or, or people in neighboring nations that sojourn among the people of Israel. That's typically the way in which it's used. It's used of the patriarchs. It's used of Israel just for a brief time. And then it's used of... It's very interesting because it's almost never used in an entirely positive sense. There's a, there's a degree in which sojourning is always this uh, this waiting game. You're, you're, you're not where you're supposed to be. You're looking forward to something better. And even Abraham, we know, was looking forward to a city whose builder and maker was God. So he was sojourning, and that was what the Lord had for him. In his Nonetheless, there was some sense of expectation. This isn't actually the way it's supposed to be. Uh, oftentimes, in the prophets, sojourning in the case of God's people is, is a kind of judgment on them. You're, you're sojourning because when I put you in the land, you, you didn't obey me. And so now you're just stuck kind of out there in no man's land, uh, wandering around. We know that the psalmist has used this earlier to describe himself. You remember in Psalm 119, I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from, from me. But I think. This image that he uses here isn't just a general one of sojourning. It's really, remember, sojourning in his house of sojourning among the wicked. And that draws our mind to Psalm 120, because in Psalm 120, what the psalmist says is this, and this is really the feel of the context of Psalm 119. Woe to me, the psalmist says in Psalm 120, that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And this is the situation of verses 53 and 54. 
the psalmist with a piece of real estate with a home, but he realizes that in his home, he's really just a sojourner and he's a sojourner among the wicked. It's not simply that he's awaiting heaven in a general sense. He's actually conscious of the fact that he, he doesn't belong among these people, that, that every, all his neighbors, that everyone who talks, he, with whom he talks has a, has a direct, directly opposed view uh, uh, to his own. They're, they're wicked and, and they forsake the law of God. And yet here I am with my, with my house planted in their midst as a sojourner. So what does this lead to? Well, what this leads to, of course, is in verse 53, hot indignation seizing him. It says, puts it this way, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake uh, your law. Now, this is a peculiar phrase. I think we have to uh, consider it fairly carefully because the word actually that the, the psalmist uses here to describe his own situation as he sojourns among the wicked is this word for burning that that he's burning has sort of captured his heart he, he he's got this burning anger that's in the midst of him actually sometimes it's it's not used at all nation that although that's how the translators take it here sometimes it's just used for for burning that the Lord is going to use to judge the wicked. In fact, in Psalm 11, this is what the psalmist says, that your, your burning is going, to, is going to catch up with the wicked. It's going to be captured in the wind, and, and it's going to grab a hold of them. And he sees that as a good thing. In Lamentations 5, God's people are said to have their, their skin, their flesh burning in this way. And again, it's because of the judgment of God. Note something else as well, that this, this burning feels in verse 53, he says that is something that has grabbed a hold of him. It, it, it's, it's, it's seized him. And, and, and so we, we begin to wonder uh, whether this is an, a, even an appropriate response for the psalmist in this case. We know, of course, that, that the, our Lord himself uh, is, ha, has great zeal that consumes him. The apostles in John 2 recognize after he cleanses the temple that that's a fulfillment of the psalm that talks about zeal for thy house will consume me. And we see as well that this burning is appropriately used of God's judgment on the wicked. And that finds its fullest expression in the great eternal judgment that's revealed to us in the book of Revelation. But there is, but I want to make three observations about this burning that seized the psalmist in the middle of his sojourning because of the wicked. First point I want to make, because I think this is very important as we analyze this and apply it to ourselves, is that the psalmist is seized by this burning uh, because of real wickedness. So whatever else you make of this verse and of this example, one thing's for sure, the psalmist the burning that he feels isn't simply because he's received some personal front to himself or he feels as if he's losing influence or hey, things haven't gone his way. No, he's, he's burning because of genuine wickedness. It, it's true that he's in trouble. It's true that he's no longer socially acceptable, but that's not what's causing the burning. The burning is because of the wicked who forsake the law of God, not just make his life uncomfortable but it's because they're forsaking God's law. I think that's one important thing to note. The second thing, and I've already alluded to this, is 
the language of this verse does raise the question, and I think the context C raises this question as well, as to whether this indignation is burning that he actually uh, something that he, he he wants to hold up as an example. It, it seizes him, and that that verb that's used of it seizing him is used eleven other times in the Old Testament. Really, I think there's only one case where you could say see it as a positive thing. Uh, in the Song of Songs, this, this woman uh, seizes her, her, her beloved when she sees him. And perhaps that's, that's a positive thing. But, but the vast majority of the time, this, this seizing, uh, when something is seized, it's, it's in the context of battle. The, the, the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. Or when it's describing an internal state, it's it's something often very sinful. Saul is described at the very end of his life. Uh, he, he says to, to one of his servants, I want you to kill me because anguish has seized me. In other words, I, I can't even see any escape from it. It's totally grabbed a hold of me. The point I think I would say is that the, what had seized him has seized him because of wickedness. And second of all, it's seized him. And that's a very dangerous thing. In the scriptures. And thirdly, I want to point this out. This state that he finds himself in in verse 53 is not the final state that we find him in in the psalm. It's not where he ends, it's not where the accent is placed. In fact, we don't even know from verse 53 if the psalmist ever expressed this hot indignation towards his enemies. But what we do know is this that where it led in verse 54 is for the psalmist to rejoice in song. So, so whatever happened in that moment of hot indignation, whether right or wrong, it's not where the psalmist ultimately lands. And so the, I, I, I say all this, and I, I want to go into a certain amount of detail, because there's really no justification for taking verse 53 as a kind of life verse. This is who I am. In the midst of the wicked, I, I'm seized by indignation. Well, if you're seized by indignation and that's your life, if that's what you're known for. If you're marked off as someone who's simply angry all the time, maybe rightly at real wickedness, but probably lack of comfort. But, but if, if that's who you are, if that's what your ministry is noted for, if in 15 years, that's the kind of pastor you're known as, well, that's not at all the picture that we get even in this section of Psalm 119. Because in this section of Psalm 119, whatever happens with this anger seizing him, it leads to him singing in the midst even of a house of sojourning among the wicked. And that's striking, I think. This singing takes place well before anything is fixed, well before his situation has changed. The wicked haven't changed. They haven't elected a new non-wicked president at this point. What's going on instead is he's still in the house of sojourning, and yet he's singing the Lord's praises. His circumstances haven't changed, but what he finds is consolation in the word of God. You remember what Paul says in the midst of suffering. Not only that, we rejoice in the midst of our suffering knowing that suffering produces endurance. And if you find that the only register on which you can speak and write is indignation, then, then again, I say this is not at all what this psalm is describing. 
And you may want to evaluate your own life at this point, particularly when it comes to the, what, the reputation you might have for those who don't know you well. Isn't this often the case that, that someone comes across as very angry all the time, particularly online? And, and, then, and then you get to know them and you realize there's a little more to their life than that. That's not the only tone in which they can speak. Those aren't the only notes they can strike. But nonetheless, that's what they're known for. That's not what the psalmist is known for. It's not what he's enjoining us to be known for as well. What he's known for ultimately is the fact that God's law is his song, even in the house of sojourning. Well, let's look briefly at this third section, this third context, and it's in the night, uh, the middle of the night, as it were. Now, we need to know that this psalmist being awake in the middle of the night, this isn't unusual for God's people. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, many sleepless nights. And in fact, God's people often found that this is the case for them. But what's he doing in the night? What's he doing when he can't sleep, when night has fallen? What he's doing is particularly remembering the name of the Lord. We have to ask ourselves, what does this mean? What does it mean that if you saw the psalmist and you saw him in the middle of the night when everyone else was asleep and it was dark and and his thoughts were racing, uh, what you'd see is that what he's thinking about, what he's reflecting on is the name of the Lord. What what does that mean? Well, well, certainly that 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 draws our minds back to Exodus chapter three. Moses is given this name of the Lord, this covenant name. I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. No doubt those are the that would go through the psalmist's mind. We could also mention a number of other names that we see of God in Scripture. We see him referred to as God Almighty, Lord of hosts, and God Most High, and God eternal and God everlasting. And it is, a, it is a very fruitful study, particularly if you're awake in the middle of the night, to think through the implications of all those names of God, profoundly beneficial. In fact, uh, I think it was J.I. Packer who had a, an extended quote at the beginning of Knowing God from, from C.I. Spurgeon. And he says that, that, that meditating on the names of God has such value. It's humbling to us. It expands our mind. And then and then he says it's eminently consolatory. What he means by that is it brings great consolation to our soul to think about these names of God. And when we think about the names of God, of course, we can't miss in verse 55 the fact that there is, as we know from the New Testament, that name above all names, the name at which every knee will bow, the name of exalted Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be meditating on the realities that stand behind, the truths that stand behind that name. John Owen, as you know, in volume one of the collected works, uh, he speaks of, of special times that we need to meditate on the name of Christ. It's a very wonderful application. And he says, first of all, uh, the first time that we need to be doing this is in times of great distress. That's what the psalmist is doing here. And then you remember as well the way he begins his his account of uh, John 17, 24, his exposition of that verse, that one of the greatest privileges and advancements of believers, both in this world and unto eternity, 
consists in their beholding the glory of Christ. He chooses those words very carefully. It's not incidental that he says the first occasion when we need to think about the name of Christ is when we're suffering. And that one of the greatest advancements we can make is beholding the glory of Christ. That's what he's doing in the middle of the night. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. Well, where does this all lead? Verse 56 tells you where he ends up. He, he looks at his life and he looks at all these terrible circumstances. Maybe he's doing this in the middle of the night and the house of sojourning. And, and he says, this blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Remember the context of this. He's being afflicted. He, he's, he's facing wickedness. Uh, seeing that all around him is driving him crazy. He's being criticized by others, derided by others. He's he's a sojourner and he knows it. And he's saying this at night. And yet what's he also doing? What does it mean that he's keeping God's precepts? Well, it means at the very least that in the midst of all this, what he's doing is he's asking God to remember his promises. He's drawing comfort from those same promises. He's singing in the midst of his suffering and he is remembering the name of God. And I wonder if that's your response to affliction and suffering. I wonder if that's what you hold up to people or whether it's something far, far less than that, far more trivial than that, far more ephemeral. And that's what it really means to live a godly life in the midst of suffering. We sang these words earlier, and I think they are a fitting summary of the theology of verse 56. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. When, when the hymn writer said this, Dear name, the rock on which I build, my shield and hiding place, my never-failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace. He knew that one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he could say that with confidence in the midst of suffering. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the comfort we derive from your word. We thank you for the clarity with which you have spoken to us, your people. Bring these things to mind as we suffer. Bring these things to mind as we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Lord, please cause us to reflect on the name above all names and to derive the comfort from Christ, which only Christ can provide by his spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.